and the Sabbath day. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 22 of the 1689 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. So I want to uh, open this chapter with what I thought was a very uh, helpful and important background. We've mentioned over and over that each chapter of the confession, the confession of the whole, uh, but specifically each chapter of the confession, it has a historical background. There's something behind and underneath it that sets a context for it. So as I go through this um, sort of opening here, I'm quoting from Gary Marble as he draws from Robert Letham's commentary on the historical context of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We mentioned before that the 1689 uh, sort of joined with the the Savoy has sort of built upon the the, um, Westminster Confession of Faith. And so I'm quoting Gary Marble as he quotes Robert Letham's commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith as it deals with this chapter of religious worship and the Sabbath day. He says, during the reign of Charles I, uh, 1625 to 1649, something called the Act of the Uniformity of Common Prayer was being enforced. Basically, these laws required clergy to follow the Book of Common Prayer in England's churches. The Book of Common Prayer was a prayer book that included prayers, of course, catechisms, daily Bible uh, reading programs, orders of service, and other aspects of church order and worship. Those churches that violated this law were actually required that this law that required them to use the Book of Common Prayer were subject to penalties ranging from six months in prison to life imprisonment after the third violation. So this was obviously very important. So a little history here. Charles I also wanted to rule England without uh, regard to parliament. So the parliament would have been the supreme legislative body at the time. This caused tension between King Charles I and parliament. In 1640, the parliament started to rule England without King Charles I. Eventually, he was tried for treason. He was convicted and executed in 1649. So now Parliament, being in control, wanted to reorder the Church of England. They wanted to make it more fully Protestant. So in 1643, the Parliament called for an assembly of clergy, the Puritan divines, and they set out uh, the doctrine of scripture and the confession of faith for England's church. And they met at Westminster. So the Westminster Confession, so in the Westminster Confession, we see the opposite of this act of uniformity, which enforced the use of the Book of Common Prayer. We actually see this chapter uh, speak about liberty to worship God as he has revealed and instituted. So Robert Letham says in this context, the focus of the Westminster Confession is more immediately liberating than restricting. Again, the Book of Common Prayer was in force and the confession in this chapter draws up uh, this paragraph or this chapter and says, no, that, that can't enforce religious worship. That can't be forced upon Christian liberty. And so out of that comes this chapter of the confession, religious worship and the Sabbath day which seeks to have the word of God inform how we worship, when, where, and what day. And so as we read this chapter with that historical background in mind, 
there are some things that we read in this chapter that we may see as uh, strict uh, or a strict view of worship. But for those in the 17th century, actually, this chapter represented the opposite of that. This chapter represents freedom to worship God as he has instituted. And so that's the, the uh, background and the context of this chapter of the confession. Uh, to further summarize what's being addressed here, uh, G.I. William Williamson lays out uh, the Puritan principle of worship versus the Anglican view of worship. He simply says, what is commanded is true worship. I'm sorry, he says, what, what is commanded is right and what is not commanded is wrong. In other words, the confessional view of worship says, true worship is only what is commanded and false worship is anything outside of that which is commanded. So simply put that way, true worship is only what's commanded and false worship is anything outside of what's commanded. This is also referred to as the regulative principle of worship. So chapter 22 can be outlined in this way, which I hope is helpful. Paragraph one deals with the authority of the, the authority that regulates worship. Paragraph two shows the right subject of worship. Paragraph three to five give us the proper means by which to worship. And paragraph six teaches about the place of worship. And then paragraph seven to eight deal with the proper day for corporate worship. <clears throat> okay, so with that um, brief uh, summary of this chapter and background, let's jump into paragraph one. Let me have someone read paragraph one for us. Thank you. All right, so my uh, PowerPoint here on my iPad is malfunctioning again. So uh, I'm just going to have you turn with me to some of these verses because they won't be up um, behind me here. <clears throat> Y'all can pray for my iPad. This is <laughs> weekly. Okay, so this paragraph starts by reminding us that the light of nature reveals the existence of God. So the phrase light of nature is another way of speaking about the knowledge placed within man's nature and man's conscience that God exists. We've talked about this in past paragraphs or past chapters. We see that clearly from Romans 1.19. So this paragraph is also saying that the light of nature is sufficient to reveal God with enough clarity to require men to worship God. So the general revelation of God through creation, when rejected, therefore has its consequences. It reveals that we ought to worship God, yet we reject it. Romans 1.21 says that men reject this revelation and do not honor or give thanks to God. So the light of nature condemns men for their lack of thanksgiving, which they owe to God as creatures because creation reveals enough about God 
that they know he should be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, etc., which this paragraph articulates. So Jeremiah 10, 7 <clears throat> says this. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. From, from among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Who would not fear you? For it is your due. Jeremiah speaking of the Holy One. So seeing that mankind is accountable and required to worship God, this paragraph goes on to say that the acceptable way of worship or to worship the true God is instituted by him and it is delimited by his own revealed will. God says how he ought to be approached in worship and only God has the authority to do that. In other words, God alone determines how he will be worshiped and that acceptable way of worshiping God is, the, is only revealed in the scriptures. So passages like Deuteronomy 12:32 shows us that God has all rights over how he will be worshiped and he requires and prescribes that acceptable way by which he'll be worshiped. Deuteronomy 12:32 says, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do and you shall not add or not take away from it. So the context of verse 32 in, in uh, Deuteronomy 12 is verse 29 to 31, which deals specifically with what? Worship. God sets the terms on how he will be worshiped, how he will be approached, and it's done only as he has commanded. So that's what the confession is driving home. God determines how he ought to be worshiped. Uh, God and only God has the authority to determine that. And so we worship him how he says we ought to. <clears throat> so in this area of the worship of God, he has commanded ways in which he will be worshiped and we can't add to it or take away from it. Again, we have to worship God as he has instituted, as he has commanded. So the confession goes on to say that God may not be worshiped according to human imaginations or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So we should not worship God according to human imagination or vain inventions. Uh, we see this in Acts 17, 29. Let me have someone read Acts 17, 29 for us. Go for it. Is that 1729, Scott? I'm sorry. Acts 17:29. Is that is that where you are? Being that the children of God, you are not content that the divine nature is like gold, a silver stone, image formed by the heart of Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So the Roman Catholic Catholic Church would say that the church is free to create uh, the boundaries of worship. And so you see certain elements added like the mass and other things. Again, 
The principle is that the church can invent or create as it wants. Why? Because the authority lives within the church. And it's this very position that the confession is denying. God should not be worshiped through the suggestions of Satan either. The Puritans and other uh, Christians throughout history believe Satan to be suggesting sin to our minds and specifically in this area of worship by adding or taking away from it. Satan in Matthew 4 tried to get Jesus to worship him by offering him a kingdom. Paul tells the Christians in 1 Corinthians 10 not to sacrifice to demons. <coughs> sacrifice throughout scripture is associated with what? Worship. This paragraph closes by saying that God should neither be worshiped through any visible representations. So just a quick comment on this. And most of modern uh, Protestantism using images of God in worship is seen as wrong and inappropriate. But it's usually not the same when it comes to images of Christ. A painting of Christ in someone's house, uh, a museum, or even a Sunday school curriculum is seen as okay. But the Puritans believe the second commandment to be prohibiting images of Christ in any way for any reason. In question 109 in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it asks the question, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? And part of the answer is given in this way. <clears throat> the sins forbidden in the second commandment are making any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. So yes, this is a topic of debate in uh, modern Protestantism and was historically as well. But the Westminster Confession is clear on this and the 1689 actually agreed with this position. Okay, with that, let's jump down to paragraph two. As I mentioned at the beginning of the class, this chapter has eight paragraphs. So um, I'll just, we'll keep going and we'll get as far as we can as we look at this chapter on religious worship and the Sabbath day. So let me have someone read paragraph two. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Since the fall, worship is not to be given without a mediator, nor through any mediation other than Christ alone. Okay, thank you. So paragraph one wanted to make clear that God alone has the authority to establish how he will be worshiped. Uh, he alone has that authority. Now paragraph two is bringing out the subject of this acceptable worship and who is the right mediator of it. So we also transition here from talking about natural worship, that worship that is required of all men based on the light of nature, to religious worship. This is worship based on special revelation, God's revealing of himself and declaring his will to the church. So natural uh, worship to religious worship. <clears throat> so we worship God as he has instituted, but we also worship God as he has revealed himself in scripture. In other words, God tells us how we should worship, but he also tells us who we should worship, namely the triune God. 
Worship is to be given to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to him alone. So chapter 2, paragraph 3 in the Confession told us that in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power and, etern power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So the three in one, the, the triune God. The Great Commission even shows us that God should be worshiped as triune. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus affirms the worship of God alone when he responded to Satan's temptation in Matthew 4, 9 to 10. Let me have someone read Matthew 4, 9 to 10 for us. So again, we're thinking about the worship of the triune God. God tells us <clears throat> how to worship, and he tells us who to worship. Matthew 4, 9 to 10. Go ahead, David. And he said to him, all these I will do. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, thank you. So because this is true, we know that worship should not uh, be given to angels, saints, or anything else in, in creation. But this is the issue. The Roman Catholic Church, Church teaches that angels should be worshiped as well. But let's see what angels themselves say about this according to scripture. Turn to Revelation 19.10. And I'm just going to read the first part of that verse, Revelation 19.10. <clears throat> it says, <clears throat> then I, this is John speaking, fell at his feet, the feet of who? The angel, and worshiped him. But he said to me, this is what the angel says to John, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So the angel is not receiving worship. He's actually deflecting it towards the one who, is, who appropriately receives it. It's appropriate recipient, which is who? God. So angels should not be worshiped, but neither should saints or any other creature. This includes the Virgin Mary. So the standards of the Church of Rome command worship to Mary as well. But as the scriptures say in the confession confirms, this should not be. The worship of God alone means the worship of God alone. And this worship of God alone ever since the fall only happens through Christ alone. So Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and men. On that basis, does anyone, on what basis does anyone stand before God to offer worship that God actually accepts? This is, can't be on our own merit. We are sinners and our sin disqualifies us from any mediatory office. Neither can this be by the merit of another creature. 
So despite what Rome's churches may teach, Mary is not an acceptable mediator either. Why? Because she's not sinless. But not only is Mary not sinless, but she has not atoned for sin. Matter of fact, Mary herself acknowledges her need for something outside of herself. So if you look at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 47, <clears throat> I'll just read the, sort of the, the first part of this here. It says, um, in, and Mary said, <clears throat> my soul extols the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in who? God, my Savior. So Mary counts herself as one in need of mercy, one in need of a Savior. And praise God that he has provided Christ, the one mediator, Mary's Savior, and our Savior, all those who believe. Okay? Okay. Let's jump down to paragraph three. Let me have someone read paragraph three for us. Thank you. So this paragraph starts by saying that prayer is something required by everyone as an element of even natural worship, that which creation reveals. But it quickly goes on to lay out what is acceptable prayer in this worship. First, it's prayer with thanksgiving. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So on the flip side of this, um, as we saw earlier in Romans 1, are those who, though they knew God, did not honor him or give thanks. So this paragraph starts by saying that prayer is required by all but then it goes on to say that prayer is only accepted through certain means or upon certain conditions. And what are those conditions? Well, one, prayer must be in the name of the Son. So that doesn't mean just adding in Jesus' name at the end of prayer uh, qualifies it as acceptable to God. Many Christless prayers have been prayed in the name of the Son. Prayer in Jesus' name has as its aim and objective the glorification of the Father in the Son. John 14, 13, verses 13 to 14 says, I'll just read it for you. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the anything in verse 14 is qualified by verse 13, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. <clears throat> These are the prayers that are, that are uh, answered. Dr. Um, Ohalsby, a Norwegian Lutheran, in a book of his, which, he, which is simply entitled Prayer, he said that prayer was Christ glorifying himself in the midst of our needs. He said, the chief end of prayer is to glorify God. 
That's a great quote. Prayer is Christ glorifying himself in the midst of our needs. And this type of prayer is offered in faith based on the merits of Christ. Not angels, not other saints, not ourselves, but the merits of Christ, which makes it acceptable to God. Prayer is alone done by the help of the Spirit, continuing in this paragraph. All right, let me have someone read Romans 8, verses 26 to 27. Romans 8, verses 26 to 27. And whoever gets there, feel free to read nice and loud for us. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thank you. <clears throat> I love what um, Johannes Voss says on this. He says, and uh, Johannes Voss is Gerhardus Voss's son. He says on this, the Holy Spirit remedies our spiritual weakness, not by revealing to us any truth apart from or in addition to the Bible, but by opening our spiritual eyes so that we can discern the true meaning of what is already revealed in the Bible and thus to be enabled to know the will of God concerning prayer. Another great quote. This paragraph continuing also says that prayer is done according to his will, according to God's will. It's really only the spirit or through the spirit that we can pray according to God's will. So what do you think when you hear the concept praying according to God's will? Uh, at times, we see God's will as this sort of uh, bullseye, or the center of the bullseye, and our prayers are these arrows that we're trying to shoot at the center of the bullseye. And if we miss it, then uh, the Lord is uh, displeased or he doesn't answer. <clears throat> but here, in this context, we're not talking about prayer according to God's unrevealed will. We're talking about prayer simply according to God's revealed will. So prayer in the way that God has told us to pray and uh, the way he has told us to pray in his word, according to God's revealed will. So we don't pray as pagans or suspicious people or, or superstitious people or suspicious people. That'd be bad, too. Uh, our prayer simply ought to be informed by and according to the word of God. It's a, it's a simple principle that so we shouldn't overcomplicate it praying according to God's revealed word. Um, we also pray with understanding. We pray with our minds engaged. We pray with reverence as in uh, with a right trepidation of the majesty of God. We pray with humility, a deep sense of our own unworthiness. We pray with fervency, effectually laboring in prayer. Uh, we also, of course, pray in faith, love, and perseverance. In other words, we should always be praying. During the time of uh, the Reformation, the practice of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church in Rome, was to offer prayers in Latin during corporate worship. So, of course, this, is, this has restricted those, which it, it would restrict those who would be able to understand and actually benefit from the prayer <clears throat> because most people didn't speak Latin. So anyone saying uh, amen in that context would only be saying it because the prayer was over because they didn't understand what it was saying anyway. 
It, they, they couldn't benefit from it. They can't say, uh, amen, I agree with that wholeheartedly, so be it, which is what amen means. They, they couldn't say that because they couldn't understand the prayer anyway. So the Reformation wanted to reform corporate worship to actually be for and of the corporate body. Not just mindless, uh, passive religious exercises or experiences. It, to, it, was, it was to be for, that the body was to be served by this time of corporate worship. <clears throat> okay, doing pretty good on time. Let's jump down to paragraph four. Thank you, thank you. So this paragraph is sort of an extension of the last paragraph, but it goes on to say that uh, we should pray for all kinds of people, those who are living now and those who will live later, but prayer should not be for the dead. Prayer should not be made for the dead. The Roman church offered prayers to the dead in the 17th century and still does. It's likely that the confession has the Roman church in mind here when it says this. And the confession points to 2 Samuel as a proof text. 2 Samuel 12, uh, verses 21 to 23. And I'll just read it for you, or you can turn there, it's up to you. 2 Samuel 12, verses 21 to 23 says, Then his servant said to him, <clears throat> What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that, he, that, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. <clears throat> so this paragraph uh, says, a prayer for all kinds of men ought to be done, but don't pray for the dead. Um, or it says, those who have sinned the sin that leads to death. Don't pray for the dead or for those who have sinned the sin that leads to death. <clears throat> so I'm going to read uh, 1 John 5, 16 for us. <clears throat> it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. This is a, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that we should make requests for this. So naturally, the question is, what is the sin that leads to death? Well, wiser men than myself have answered. <laughs> so I'm going to let John Calvin help us as we look at this uh, sin that leads to death. Uh, there's a sin unto death, he says. <clears throat> it may be gathered from the context that it is not, as some say, a partial fall or a transgression of a single command, but apostasy by which men wholly alienate themselves from God. For the apostle afterwards adds that the children of God 
do not sin, that is, they do not forsake God and wholly render themselves to Satan to be his slaves. Such a defection, it is, it is no wonder that is mortal, for God never thus deprives his own people of the grace of the Spirit, but they never uh, retain some sparks, or they ever retain some sparks of true religion. Uh, they must then be reprobate or given up to destruction who thus fall away so as to have no fear of God. So he's saying that this is uh, an apostate. This is someone who utterly uh, apostatizes. So this short paragraph shows us how much scripture actually talks about acceptable prayer to God. We should be informed and instructed by this paragraph as we consider private and public prayer. Okay, let's jump down to paragraph five. Let me have someone read paragraph five for us. Thank you. <clears throat> so here we're still addressing aspects of religious worship. And we've defined religious worship as the acceptable way of worshiping the true God, instituted by himself and limited by his own revealed will. This paragraph starts by saying that the word of God plays a primary role in worship, corporate worship, religious worship. Reading the scriptures, preaching the scriptures and hearing the scriptures. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is an exposition of the law. Moses retells it in sort of five different addresses to the assembled people of God. The book of the law having been neglected by the kings before then is read aloud by King Josiah to who? The assembled people. Second uh, Corinthians 34, 30 says, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 34.30. There is no 2 Corinthians 34.30. Uh, 2 Chronicles 34.30 says, The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, from the greatest to the least, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. We also see in Nehemiah 8.8 8, another example of the scriptures being read before all the people. Uh, Nehemiah 8.8, 8, I'm going to read from the King James Version because I like the way it reads. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, it says, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So this verse is actually the basis for expository preaching which is what uh, the elders do here at Faith Baptist. The book of the law is read and they gave a sense of the meaning, which it says, cause the people to understand. So in the original language, this phrase could be read, they gave insight or understanding, which caused the people to observe, mark, give heed to, or consider what was read. They expounded what was read. 
we see the same instruction in, to the church in the New Testament. Christ himself and the apostles instructed the church to the public reading and instruction of scripture. Matthew 28, uh, 19 to 20 says, uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then later, Paul follows his master's instruction, and he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to what? The public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Uh, there are many other verses um, that show this, and I won't go through all of them because we don't have the time. Um, but it's easy to see from scripture that uh, we're called to, the church is called to pay attention to the public reading of scripture and the preaching of the word of God. And the confession here affirms what the Bible teaches. But it's not just the, the elders preaching the word of God that's important. It's also our duty of attending the corporate preaching of the word. Being in corporate worship and sitting under the preached word. So if God has given this instruction to the church, then it is our duty to attend to that and obey his word and attend to the preaching of his word. This is a means of grace. Uh, and the confession goes on listing elements of religious worship, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And it says there are all parts of religious worship to God. <clears throat> and it, that's pulled from Colossians 3.16 which you can go back and read. So historically, Reformed Baptists did favor uh, the singing of uh, psalms in worship, but they didn't reject other types of songs, which we see in uh, Colossians 3.16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So they saw uh, Colossians 3.16 as making room for hymns and other spiritual psalms. Music and corporate worship is an area where people, of course, have really strong convictions on both sides, um, which is not surprising. Uh, and there's a lot that can be said about this, but what the confession is affirming is this, the regulative principle of worship. Letting God and his word and what he has instituted function as a guide as we think through uh, different songs and these different issues. Uh, that's what's being put forth here. <clears throat> okay. So I won't be able to touch on each point in the rest of this paragraph, but I did want to at least touch on baptism and the Lord's Supper as parts of religious worship. So Christ himself uh, institutes baptism, and so it must be part of religious worship. It doesn't have to be the main subject of a worship service, but it should be done in a setting that is one of worship with the church present. So corporate worship also includes um, <clears throat> another Christ-appointed ordinance, which is a part of religious worship. And what is that? It's the Lord's Supper. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Then Paul reiterates Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. 
And I'm just going to read verses uh, 23 to 26. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night, in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the name, in, in the same way, he took the cup after, also, after supper, saying, This is the covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You will hear our, our elders say this when they are um, uh, praying over the Lord's Supper or speaking over the Lord's Supper. Uh, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So much more can be said about the Lord's Supper uh, and even baptism as a means of grace that would be encouraging to the soul of the believer. Um, and the confession gives, a whole, gives whole chapters to those, those things, so we won't do that now. Um, <clears throat> and though some might disagree with the necessity of these parts of corporate worship, it's clear from the New Testament um, that these things are indeed very important parts of religious worship. Okay, let's jump down to paragraph six. Let me have someone read paragraph six for us. Thank you. <clears throat> so under the old covenant, there were different ceremonial feasts that required religious worship only be done in Jerusalem. It was common for prayer to be offered facing towards Jerusalem. But since these feasts and temple associated with these old covenant forms of worship were, were simply shadows and types of the true heavenly things they represented, they have been fulfilled under the new covenant. Now, under the gospel, the religious worship and the direction that one has to face is done away with. It's abrogated. The confession uses John 4 here as a, a proof text. John 4, <clears throat> uh, 20 to 24. And I'll just read, uh, I'll just read uh, 21 and uh, I'll just read all of it. Our father worshiped in this mountain uh, the, the woman says, and, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Um, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. By his, uh, God is spirit and those who worship him must, must worship in spirit and truth. And Malachi prophesies of this time to come in Malachi 1.11 when he says, From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure 
for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. If you remember last week's class on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, paragraph one says, all these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have greater confidence of access to the throne of grace. So to go back to this form of worship is to betray the freedom Christ has purchased for us. The first paragraph says, <clears throat> the, the first part of the paragraph says that, says that prayer should happen. The next section talks about when and where prayer should happen. It says prayer should occur daily in private families, by oneself and in public assemblies or corporate worship. Family worship and prayer was a high priority for the Puritans. Uh, we, know <clears throat> uh, we know that for us even now, uh, weekly life as families can get very, very busy, but it's an essential part of what we do as families to be praying together. Not only praying together, uh, but also praying privately, not only praying privately, but also praying corporately. <clears throat> so prayer should be a part of what the saints do when they are gathered together, when they are assembled together. This can be in formal gatherings of the saints on the Lord's Day or when they get together to study the Bible or fellowship. In all these situations, prayer should still be a consistent practice. Prayer should always be done with reverence and seriousness. We should never get into a practice of willfully neglecting prayer and anyway. Okay, I think we'll only be able to cover one more, uh, paragraph seven. So let's jump down to paragraph seven and we'll probably close on this paragraph. Let me have someone read paragraph seven for us. As it is the law of nature <clears throat> that in general portion, that in general a portion of time by God's appointment be set apart to the worship of God, so by this word in a positive, moral, and perpetual Thank you. So some would see this uh, paragraph as a weaker paragraph in the confession, <clears throat> but we'll see that that's not the case. As we continue looking at the elements of worship, this paragraph <clears throat> or this chapter has discussed the place of worship, the direction of worship, and now the day of worship. The paragraph uses a couple things to ground the basis for a Sabbath the law of nature and the word of God. The law of nature is a reference to that which God has placed in nature itself. It's ingrained into creation. The Sabbath was designed to fit mankind's need for a day to rest from labor. It was also designed for the need to worship God formally once a week. So God himself has provided an appointed proportion of time as this paragraph states. You'll notice that the paragraph also uses this language in general. 
So the idea here is to avoid restricting the perpetuity of the Sabbath to only the seventh day. The idea is to avoid restricting that the, the, the continuity, the consistency that the Sabbath is perpetual only to the seventh day. So the writers of the confession have something in mind here. They have in mind the change of day, which God moved from the seventh day to the first day of the week. So the Sabbath is more about a proportion of time, uh, a day of the week, than a specific day. But this does not mean we are free to choose just any day. It means that God is free to change the day. And so this should be done. And, and so what should be done on this day is the question. This paragraph affirms that it should be set aside for the worship of God. And how do we know this was to be set aside for worship? Well, Genesis 2.3. Genesis 2.3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the fact that God uh, made this day holy means that he sanctified it. To sanctify means to consecrate or set apart for the service of God. The use of the word holy here makes worship implicit. Worship is contained in the word holy, in other words. Exodus 20 also gives us strong evidences for the perpetuity of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath continues. It shows us that the Sabbath is not done away with. Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11 says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants or your female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. This paragraph also says that God has spoken in a positive, moral, and perpetual command. So A.A. A. Hodges says on this point that the positive command has its basis in the divine will of God. God specifically commanded that we honor the Sabbath. It's moral because it involved right and wrong. So it's a matter of obedience and or disobedience of God's command. The fourth command is also a perpetual command. In other words, it has no end. It's binding on all men for all time and every age. The confession also brings out what it means by every age. And it does this by saying, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day was the last day of the week. So from Adam to Christ, the Sabbath command was directed to the seventh day, the last day of the week. But after the resurrection of Christ, it has changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. The language Lord's Day is taken from uh, John in Revelation 1.10. But that phrase is actually descriptive of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The phrase, my holy day, and the Lord's holy day, is found in Isaiah 58, 13. But Revelation 1 says, 
uh, I'm sorry, Revelations 1.10 says, I was in the spirit, John speaking, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, as I teach through this chapter and specifically this paragraph, I do recognize that the idea of the Sabbath as binding on the New Testament Christian raises a lot of questions and a lot of legitimate questions. Uh, it's not a common idea in modern evangelicalism to talk about a Sabbath. The word itself sounds old and irrelevant. I understand that. But I think if we start to understand the Sabbath in its proper category and make a distinction between the Jewish seven-day Sabbath and the Christian Sabbath, it will help us as we think through the fourth commandment. So the Sabbath was instituted at creation, Genesis 2-3, included in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and continued in the Lord's Day. Now, a common and legitimate question is this. If the Sabbath is a moral law, if it's perpetual, how can it be changed? That's a legitimate question. The Seventh-day Adventists and other traditions have dealt with this dilemma by saying that the day actually has not changed. They would say that the Sabbath day is still the seventh day or last day of the week. And I completely understand that. If the Sabbath is a moral law and it can't be changed, and that's the, log the logical conclusion. On the other end, <clears throat> some have concluded that since the day has changed, then the Sabbath can't be moral law. If you're saying the day has changed, then how is it a moral law? That's the question. <clears throat> they would say, I agree with you that the day has changed. And clearly, since it's changed, it's, a, it's not a moral law. And again, I get that too. That's the logical conclusion on the day changing within a perpetual law. <clears throat> if the day change, it can't be a moral law, but, but let's think through uh, another option. The Sabbath is unique. It, it, it is a unique uh, command. And the language of the confession recognizes this. It uses positive moral and perpetual command. But this unique moral law has two elements at work within it. On one side, it's a law of nature, it's written in creation. And on the other side, it has what Samuel Waldron calls in his commentary, positive enactments. In, the other word, in other words, what God does with it. It's a law of nature, written in creation, but it has positive enactments, what God does with it. <clears throat> the law of nature cannot be and is not changed, it's perpetual, but the positive enactments may be changed and is changed. So the Sabbath command as a law of nature tells us that the Sabbath is, and the Sabbath with its positive enactments tells us when the Sabbath is. So there's a distinction there that's important as we think about the Sabbath. Because it's a law of nature, it's always with us. Because it's a positive, because it has positive enactments, the day has changed. And who has the authority to change the day? The Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was changed by the resurrection of Christ to the first day uh, of the week from the seventh day. Sabbath observance was abolished, or the, the seventh day Sabbath observance 
was abolished along with the Old Testament ceremonial laws attached to it. And so we see a new apostolic example set in the New Testament. Okay, I am out of time, but a couple of verses to, to think through. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 2, and Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I'll just read them. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you was to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come to you. Also, Acts 27. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. The phrase there, break bread, in Acts 20, verse 7, is not just a casual meal together. No doubt there is also casual fellowship eating taking place, but this phrase is consistently used in the New Testament to refer to communion, or taking the Lord's Supper. This is taking place when the saints are gathered together. And when are the saints gathered together? On the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. So with the foundation established that we're commanded to honor the Sabbath, and when we're to honor the Sabbath, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, the confession moves into the next paragraph to explain how we should keep the Christian Sabbath. So I, I won't be able to get to paragraph eight. <clears throat> I'll have to close there, but feel free if you have any uh, thoughts or questions to come and we can talk about it afterwards. I'm gonna go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We want to be Christians that understand and obey your word. May your voice and your truth speak louder than any of the voices in our culture or any of the voices in this world. May we open your word and know and see that you are speaking to us. Um, even today as we gather, assembled together by you, the household of the elect, on the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath, we pray that you would bless our time together. May we attend well to the preaching of your word. May we hear well with ears attuned and hearts ready to receive your word. Uh, may, may we have prepared our hearts and prepared ourselves for this unique day and special time. And may you bless us, Lord, as we are gathered for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.